Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Welcome to another session of The Art of Living. The Art of Living suggests that going through life can be either a science or an art. The art takes you a little bit deeper beyond the surface, beyond the obvious, and sometimes beyond the pragmatic. In the science of living, you do what you have to do and you do it correctly, and you do it well. And so your life moves along smoothly, successfully. But in the art of living, you go beyond the surface and beyond the success to the deeper meaning, to the fulfillment, to the pleasure of life, to the purpose of life. A carpenter, wherever he looks, sees construction. A cobbler, wherever he looks, sees shoes. The tailor, wherever he looks, he sees suits. The godly person, wherever he looks, he sees godliness. In the smallest details, in the most unexpected of places, the godly person sees godliness. The Rebbe pointed out the godliness that exists everywhere to every person in a way that they can see it immediately and clearly. So to the carpenter, to the doctor, to the baker, to the mathematician, in each of their lives, there is godliness to be seen. And the Rebbe points it out in various letters that are now published in the collected letters of the Rebbe. In the book, Listening to Life's Messages, a number of these letters are collected and uh, organized in terms of profession and uh, art and so on. Let's take a look, for example, a letter that the Rebbe wrote to a businessman pointing out the possible inspiration that can be derived just from the notion, from the idea of business. The Rebbe writes, there's a big difference between a business owner and the employee. A hired person puts in his required hours and but leaves the concerns of the business behind him at the end of the day. Even the most conscientious employee doesn't demonstrate the same level of involvement and concern as the owner of the business. By contrast, the businessman is always concerned with the demands of his business. He may be eating or socializing, but not for a moment does he forget the needs of his business. Although the business may be running smoothly, he always looks for ways to improve or expand on it. A Jew should approach his spiritual business, and especially the study of Torah, with the same dedication that the business owner displays towards his business. Whatever our occupation during most of the day, Torah should be our real business to the extent that we cannot detach ourselves from it. However short the actual study session may be, we should still be preoccupied with it hours after we've returned to our more mundane activities. According to the Gemara, to the Talmud, when a person becomes preoccupied with Torah, it's as if he had redeemed 
the Shekhinah from exile, taking God out of exile. Since the Torah and God are one, this will surely benefit him in all aspects of his life. That's to the businessman. The lesson and the inspiration one can derive from a business is that business is taken very personally. You're not born with it. It doesn't come naturally. You find a business, you create a business, you get involved in a business. But the involvement, once it's there, is so personal. You become so identified with it that it is natural for you to be thinking about it at all times and in all places. It goes with you. It's there with you everywhere. Now, that may be good or, or not so good, but the lesson from it is certainly good. And that is that although we're not born studying Torah, we're not born committed to the study of Torah, but when we do get committed, when we do get involved in the study of Torah, it should not be as if we are studying someone else's Torah, like working in someone else's business, but it becomes our business. We are the, the businessmen, and it's our investment, and it's our profit, and therefore we should be obsessed with it all the time. Can you imagine a spiritual lesson, a godly lesson from dry cleaning or from laundry? Here's a letter that the Rebbe wrote about cleaning. A garment, before being worn, is completely clean, smooth, and lies properly on the wearer. But after it is worn for a while, it usually becomes creased, dusty, or stained. Of course, one does not throw away the garment. It is taken to a cleaner to have it restored to its original condition. To clean the garment, the cleaner will place it in a machine, then add a hot liquid and various chemical agents to remove the dirt and the grime. Afterwards, he will iron the garment by pressing it with a weight, a heavy weight, and the garment will once again be as good as new. From this process, we gain insight into the soul, the neshama, that we have. When God gives us a neshama, the soul is given pure, smooth, and with a perfect fit. As we say in the morning prayers, the soul that you have given me is pure. With time, as the soul becomes involved in worldly matters, and if it is not used to fulfill the will of God, it tends to become creased. Dirt may cling to it if the person neglects a mitzvah or commits a sin. Whatever the case may be, Torah teaches us that we must not despair over the condition of the soul and its fitness to sustain the individual's life. We need only to restore the soul to its original state, to place it in a conducive environment and infuse it with the warmth of Torah and mitzvahs. The warmth, or the heat, must also be moist, so that the soul will cling to all that is holy. This can be accomplished through davening, through praying with a whole heart. As it is written, pour out your heart like water. And through concentrated Torah study, as it is written, all who thirst go for water. There is no water other than Torah. Then, to complete the spiritual cleansing process, 
Other ingredients must be added, such as tzedakah, charity, keeping kosher, eating only kosher, and observing Shabbos, and so on. Then, if a person places the weight of Torah observance upon himself, like the iron, which initially may seem heavy and burdensome, it will prove not to be a burden at all, but an enhancement, a process that irons out the neshama, irons out the soul, and returns it to its original unblemished condition. The thought of a garment never becoming dirty and never needing to be cleaned is not a very godly way of thinking. If we look at the world, we see immediately that God created the world in such a way that even the highest soul, even the greatest soul, must get its hands dirty, so to speak, and must engage in activities that are, at first glance, really not appropriate for a soul. Just the very act of eating three times a day, eating food. A godly soul engaged in eating seems to be uh, an unnatural and degrading activity for the soul. And yet, that's how God created the world. God wants a soul, but in a body. And in the body means involved with the body, subject to the body's needs and to the body's ills and to the body's weaknesses. And so that is the original plan. This is how life is supposed to be. Life is supposed to involve cleansing. Life is supposed to involve a constant adjustment where we get our hands dirty, we get involved in earthy, worldly activities, then we clean that up and we go back for more. And in that way, we elevate not only the soul, but the world around us as well. Here's a letter that the Rebbe wrote to another businessman with another slant on the subject of business. The Rebbe writes, The primary goal in any business transaction is the profit that you will derive from it. And yet, there are differences in the nature of people involved in business. For some, profit is the only reason for running the business, and the work that is entailed is only a necessary evil or a burden. By contrast, another businessman may find that the business itself, the work itself, is rewarding, and though he also anticipates a profit, he wants to make a living, yet he enjoys the work for its own sake, even if he has to expend considerable time and effort. For this person, the monetary rewards in no way is comparable to the enjoyment of the work itself. On a spiritual level, the Torah is the life's work of every Jew. You may have a Jew who studies Torah for the gaining of the knowledge. He needs to know how to live his life and how to behave as a Jew. And so he needs to study the Torah. And he will reap an additional reward because Torah study itself is a mitzvah. But nothing can compare to the deep joy and pleasure to be derived from the very involvement in the study of Torah, not for the sake of instruction on how to behave, but just for the study itself. If one is submerged in the study 
body and soul, that pleasure is much greater than even the rewards of the Torah study. This is a, uh, a rather original concept with the Rebbe, in that studying Torah for its own sake, which has always been held up as a high ideal, as a perfect ideal, but the study of Torah for its own sake always included in most people's thinking the study of Torah so that one would know the Torah and know how to behave. Because study leads to doing. So the greatness of the study is that it, it enables you to do, it enables you to live your life in accordance with Torah, with God's will. But the Rebbe says that the study of Torah for its own sake means not for the sake of doing mitzvahs, although there's no other way to get to the mitzvah other than through the study of Torah. But the Rebbe says that the study of Torah itself can be so pleasurable that it rewards itself before you even get to the doing. And that that reward or that pleasure is the study of Torah for its own sake, for the sake of the study itself. Now, this doesn't mean that you study Torah and you don't do mitzvahs, or that the Torah doesn't move you, the study doesn't move you to do the mitzvah. Of course, the two have to come together. A person who loves to go to work because he loves his profession or he loves his job, but doesn't make a living, is a shlomazel. You have to have the practical benefits. You have to have the practical results. The question is only, where does your pleasure lie? For some people, the pleasure lies in the results. Now I know how to do the mitzvah properly. I know how to keep kosher. I know how to keep Shabbos. And for some people, the pleasure lies in the knowledge itself and in the pursuit of that knowledge. Let's turn to medical science and see what we can find there. Here's a letter from the Rebbe concerning disease. The Rebbe writes, it is written in Rambam, Rambam says that just as there are sicknesses and remedies for the body, there are also sicknesses and remedies for the soul. By observing conditions that affect the body, we can make certain inferences also about the effect on the soul. A state of illness generally implies either a deficiency or a weakness in some part of the body. There is, however, a certain disease in which the body is not lacking anything. On the contrary, the problem is that something new has been added, such as a growth. At first glance, it appears that this extra flesh or extra cell should not cause any harm. Nevertheless, this is a condition that can be even more dangerous than when something is lacking in the body. This additional growth is detrimental to the organ on which it grows and may even spread and harm other parts of the body. The treatment for this disease differs greatly from the remedies used to cure other illnesses. In most cases, the treatment adds something to the body. The remedy for this particular disease is to remove the superfluous growth, allowing the person to become healthy once again. In the past, this disease was not as prevalent as it is today, and therefore a cure was not actively pursued. Unfortunately, in spite of the tremendous advances in many areas of medicine, this illness occurs with alarming frequency these days, 
and as a result, many new treatments have been devised to combat it. In the spiritual realms, we are now living in an age that is called the footsteps of Mashiach, when Mashiach's footsteps can be heard, heralding an end to the darkness, which is symptomatic of the final period of exile. In anticipation of the end of evil, there is a last-minute surge in some negative ways, particularly insolence and arrogance. These afflictions reflect their equivalence in the physical realm, where growths take over the body and can give the impression that the afflicted person exists only for the sake of the growth of these unhealthy cells. Although these negative traits existed before, they were never as prevalent as they are today. God provides us with new therapies in the form of the teachings of Hasidus, revealed only in the past two centuries. The study of Hasidus teaches us how to remove the unhealthy portion that manifests as arrogance. For this reason, the study of Hasidus is more important now than ever before. Although its dissemination was not necessary in earlier times, the increasing darkness in the world requires a greater increase in light. However, the analogy is not perfect. In the physical realm, if one continues with a treatment for an extended time, the treatment itself can have a detrimental effect on the healthy parts of the body. In the spiritual realm, one can engage in the study of Hasidus for a lifetime, and in fact, such constant study will have only a positive outcome, the continuing refinement of our character. There are two kinds of illness that I've been saying. There's an illness where the body loses some healthy function or some healthy tissue and so on. It's a decrease in the body. And then there are illnesses where there's actually an increase. But the increase is unhealthy. What would make the increase unhealthy? If there's more to the body than before, why isn't that progress? Why isn't that positive? Why isn't that growth in the positive sense? It's because this new growth, this addition to the body, has an arrogance to it. It doesn't get along. It doesn't live in harmony with the rest of the body. And it is certainly not subservient to the rest of the body. Because in a healthy body, every part and every function bows and submits to the needs and to the function of the other parts of the body, of the other organs. So the heart and the lungs and the kidneys and the liver, they all work together to enhance each other's processes. But this new growth seems to have an arrogance, an existence of its own, without any consideration for the other functions in the body or for the healthy functions in the body. And it's because of this arrogance and separateness, it's because of its unwillingness or inability to cooperate and to be in harmony with the rest of the body, that this additional growth becomes an illness of the worst kind. In previous generations, it didn't happen as often. So the spiritual side of it is that in the religious world, in the spiritual world, there has always been a humility, 
a willingness and openness to hear each other's spiritual growth, to learn from each other, to learn with each other. But when in the spiritual world we have this arrogance and this unwillingness to live together spiritually, to work together spiritually, and to grow together spiritually, then we need a new remedy. We need a new medicine that hadn't been used or hadn't been popular in previous generations because the illness didn't demand it. And so it is with the study of Torah that today we need a new therapy or additional therapy. Although Torah is itself therapeutic, the study of Torah, we need a new therapy for the new disease, and that is the study of Hasidus. The study of Hasidus introduces a humility and an ability, a flexibility, that allows us to be inspired and to draw inspiration from all parts of Torah, meaning from all types of spiritual, godly growth and development, so that we can see the godliness everywhere and in every one, and in that way create a greater harmony of all the healthy parts of the Jewish community and enhance and be enhanced by all the uh, forms and all the healthy functions that are all godly and together make up one healthy body. The difference, however, is that in any treatment in the physical world, in the physical realm, if the treatment goes on for a long time, although it's intended to heal the diseased part, it can begin to create disease in the healthy parts. Whereas in the spiritual world, the study of Hasidus, which is a therapy or a healing a remedy for this disease of arrogance, it is not limited. That's not its only function. And therefore, if you study Hasidus for a long time and the arrogance is already healed and gone, would it be detrimental? Would it be harmful to continue studying Hasidus? Would it start to have a negative effect? And the answer is... That's only true in the physical. In the spiritual, godliness can only enhance more and more. The more we study, the more we're improved, the, more, the healthier we become. So you can't become too humble or humble to an unhealthy degree through the study of Hasidus. On the contrary, it strengthens and heals and elevates for an entire lifetime. Let's take a look at the pharmacy, the drugstore. The Rebbe writes probably to a pharmacist or to a chemist, in a well-stocked pharmacy, one can see a great variety of medicines used to treat all types of illness. The pharmacist will inform the customer that only a qualified expert is allowed to dispense medicines. Also, if a patient is to recover from his illness, he must take the medicine exactly as instructed by the expert. This situation exists also in the spiritual realm. Each of us has been sent to this world by God to heal or refine ourselves with the remedies that he has provided, the remedies being Torah and mitzvahs. However, we still require the services of a pharmacist, a teacher to advise us and guide us 
to the correct medications. Without the skillful judgment of such a person, we may select the wrong cure and endanger our health. It's important to keep in mind that once the medicine is in our possession and we know the proper dosage, we must not wait or make excuses for not taking the medicine. Obviously, one can recover only by taking the medicine as prescribed. Similarly, we can fulfill our earthly mission only if we take the medicine, which means complete the spiritual obligations in Torah and mitzvahs. A pharmacy provides another interesting insight. One can find in the pharmacy, on the drugstore's shelves, different types of poison. The pharmacist will inform us of the fact that minute amounts of certain poisons that could harm a healthy person will actually cure certain illnesses. There are instances when one must dispense small amounts of poison. For example, although we're taught never to insult or embarrass another person, we must nevertheless be firm in refusing to eat what isn't kosher, for example, or to violate a mitzvah, even if it makes the other person uncomfortable. In addition, there are times when a person must rebuke a friend who is violating the dictates of Torah, particularly when you have reason to believe that your friend will listen to you. This small dose of poison can be the remedy that will heal the person. In the analogy that Ebbe is saying that God is our doctor, but the sages, the rabbis, are our pharmacists. So God provides the medicine, the prescription. God tells us what needs to be healed and how to heal it. But then we have to go to the pharmacist, we have to go to the rabbis and to the teachers to get the instructions on exactly which medicine, which mitzvah, which part of Torah to apply under which circumstances, and how much, how frequently, and so on. To take this a step further, if one uses the medicine prescribed and given by God, but one uses that medicine incorrectly, the medicine itself, instead of giving life, can actually become a source of negative and unholy things. Without the sages, without the oral law, without Rabbi Akiva, without Hillel, without all of the sages of the Mishnah and the Talmud, without all the great codifiers of Jewish law like Rambam, without the Baal Shem Tov, without all the great teachers, including the writer of this letter, the Rebbe himself, Torah could be so misunderstood, it could be applied so wrongly, so incorrectly, that it could become the most dangerous thing in our lives. As we are seeing these days, how the misunderstanding and the misapplication of religious principles, of faith and of devotion and of belief, can be so deadly, can be so unholy, can be so wrong. So without the pharmacists, the holiest of the holies, the Torah itself, God's prescription could be misused and abused to where it causes more damage than good. And so the pharmacist in the spiritual world is really indispensable.
without the sages and without the rabbis, our best intentions could be the most destructive and the most unhealthy. With their teachings, with their guidance, with their protection, Torah becomes the source of all healing. Torah becomes only healthy, only good, only godly. And particularly when it comes to applying the little bit of poison that is sometimes necessary. How do you fight evil? You have to use a little bit of poison. How do you stop a person from destroying themselves? You've got to use a little poison, a little tough love, a toughness that would be inappropriate if the person was healthy, but very helpful and life-saving when the person needs it and we know how to apply it properly. And only by the instruction of the pharmacist are we permitted to use this little bit of poison carefully, cautiously, and only to the extent needed and then switch immediately back to the pleasant love, the, uh, the kind love, rather than the tough love. Love without the poison. In the art of living, one can find godliness everywhere, even in bacteria. <laughs> Here's a letter from the Rebbe, written in 1969, about bacteria. In the letter, the Rebbe says, medicine has begun to realize that repeated use of penicillin or other antibiotics can lead to a dangerous situation where bacteria modifies into new resistant strains which cannot be treated by any known therapy. This phenomenon reminds us of the statement in the Gemara, in the Talmud. There is no comparison between a person who reviews his study of Torah a hundred times, and the, the one who reviews it a hundred and one times. That additional time, the hundred and one, makes the study completely different than the first hundred. In the positive, as in the negative, constant repetition can lead not only to a greater quantity, to additional quantity, but to a qualitative change in the effects of a particular activity. In the times of the Talmud, it was customary, since it was an oral study, it was customary to repeat and review each chapter a hundred times. The addition of just one extra time beyond the habitual number changed the quality of the study, gave it a whole new quality. And this benefit is derived for us all whenever we extend ourselves just a little bit beyond what we are accustomed to do. From resistant bacteria, we get a lesson in life. If you repeat something often enough, the increase in the quantity will eventually, suddenly, create a dramatic change in the quality. You reach a certain point critical mass, and all of a sudden the experience changes dramatically. Although it would appear that all you did was add in the quantity, in the repetition of the experience, just one more time. You've already done it a hundred times. Now you're going to do it one more time. And all you're going to benefit from it is 
one hundredth increase in the quantity of the experience. And yet, this hundred and first time can create a dramatic change in the quality of the experience. It becomes a whole new thing. As, for example, if a hundred times is your habit, that's your uh, comfort zone because that's what everybody does and that's how you were trained and this has become second nature to you to review a lesson a hundred times. Then the hundred times all contribute towards better retention of remembering the lesson more clearly, more precisely, more permanently. But when you go to the hundred and first time, which is not on the schedule, it's not in the script, this is not your habit, it's not your comfort zone, you're pushing yourself a little bit beyond your habit, then the experience becomes something completely different. It's not merely memorizing. It's not merely engraving the teaching in your mind and heart. It becomes a whole different experience of going beyond yourself, stepping out of yourself, out of your habits and comfort zone, into the interest or demands or pleasure of something outside yourself, of God himself. So by going to the 101st time, you're stepping into God's world. Now it's God's Torah that you're studying. And that's why you're studying it beyond your habit, beyond your comfort level. And so the quality, the entire nature of the experience has suddenly changed dramatically because you studied one more time. The same, I guess, would be true with davening. We daven three times a day. We say the same words over and over and over, day after day, week after week, month after month. And the thought of davening one more time is considered or seen as an addition in the quantity of how many times we davened, how often we davened, how consistently we davened, how we don't miss a day and every day is accounted for. But at some point, this next davening can become a whole different experience. The quality changes, even though we thought we were only adding a little bit in the quantity. So this is what we learn from resistant bacteria. Let's take a look at surgery. A knowledgeable stranger, an uninformed stranger, who enters an operating room will observe a helpless person on a table surrounded by masked men holding knives and other dangerous instruments. The men cut and draw blood, disregarding the pain of the victim who is drugged and prevented from moving. The stranger's reaction will naturally be to run for help because as far as he can see, there are a group of evil people torturing a helpless person. If the stranger realizes that the activity he is observing is actually a surgical procedure essential to the patient's well-being and survival, he would certainly understand why the few hours of pain on the operating table are justified. In fact, he would probably argue that the masked men are great humanitarians who are performing a vital service. 
This impression will remain even though no doctor can guarantee a cure, or how long the patient will live even if the surgery is successful. From this example, you can understand that a person's life sometimes involves elements of pain. When we are caught in the middle of a difficult situation, it's not easy to appreciate the great benefits that might result from this temporary discomfort. The concept of divine providence assures us that there are no random occurrences in the world. The painful episodes are part of the divine plan, an all-encompassing system that includes the individual, his family, and every other person, thing, or event that occurs. The person who doesn't understand surgery will certainly misunderstand and mistranslate what he is seeing, what his eyes are telling him. Now, you can't blame a person who, looking at a surgery, thinks that he is witnessing an evil act because it's all true. It's all true. It is, in fact, painful. It is, in fact, harmful. It's causing a scar, loss of blood. It is all bad. It's not imaginary. It's factual. This is a terrible thing happening to the patient, and it's being inflicted on him by other people. So what his eyes are telling him is correct. He's not imagining things. And yet, when he decides, when he comes to the conclusion that this is something that should be stopped, that this is something that should never happen, now he is wrong. Now his conclusion is untrue, even though his observation was correct and true. This is the difficult thing. If we could somehow dismiss all suffering as imaginary, as not truly happening, it's an illusion. We only think we're suffering, but we're not really suffering. If only that were true, but it's not. The truth is that the suffering is real. And that's why we have commandments concerning visiting the sick, comforting the bereaved, not standing in the blood of our brother, in other words, doing something to prevent harm to another person. That's why we have the commandment to seek out a healer, a doctor, when we're not feeling well, and to avoid things that are dangerous to our health. Because these things are real. The pain is real, the suffering is real, the tragedies are real. And to suggest otherwise is ungodly and contrary to Torah. And at the same time, we are told that only good comes from heaven and that only good happens in God's world and that even when things look bad, we're supposed to say this too is for the good. So how does this work? That's why the analogy to the surgeon. In surgery, there really is bloodletting. There really is cutting and causing pain, which will linger and last for a long time before the patient has completely recovered. The pain is real. The damage is real. The scar is real. And if an organ needs to be removed, that amputation is real and tragic. And yet at the same time, the surgeon is the angel of healing. He saves lives. He restores health. 
And in order to appreciate that, we have to see a much bigger picture. And so it is in the spiritual world, all that we experience in life that is painful. Divine providence says, if you understood, if you could see the bigger picture, you would see how this pain, as real as it is, is justified a thousand times over because of the good that it produces. But in order to appreciate that good, we have to have more evidence. We have to have a bigger picture. We have to see how family and other people and past events and future events all come into play to make the temporary pain justified and positive and life-giving in the long run. A vaccine. Eber writes in a letter very briefly. Several decades ago in the field of medicine, it was discovered that the body can avoid certain illnesses if it is vaccinated, inoculated, with a radically weakened strain of various diseases which the body will then be able to fight off, avoid, or heal. Through this process, the body produces antibodies, custom-made weapons to guard against the illness. The principles of healing the body, according to Rambam, applies also to the healing of the soul. And this can provide us with a positive way of viewing the minor difficulties in the execution of an important project. A weak dose of opposition early on in a venture can serve as a vaccine against more severe and difficult adversities later on. If we apply this, let's say, to a marriage, very often the first year of marriage is very painful and difficult. And one begins to wonder whether the whole thing is worthwhile. But the truth is that as with a vaccine, when you have a reaction, a painful reaction to the injections, that temporary and uh, brief experience of the poison, of the negative, of the difficulties, that's what strengthens the system. That's what strengthens the marriage. That's what solidifies the relationship so that if, God forbid, later on in the marriage, a true difficulty comes along, the marriage will be able to survive it, the marriage will be able to handle it, and you will come out of the other end successfully. And so the, the difficulties that occur at the beginning of any involvement with Torah, with godliness, the difficulties when you first start to keep Shabbos, the difficulties when you first start to keep kosher, the discomforts, the friction with family members and so on, all of this has to be viewed as a vaccine, a little bit of difficulty that makes you able to handle great difficulty down, down the line later on in life. So much for medicine. Let's go into the world of art. The world of art is not usually associated in people's minds with godliness and holiness and mitzvahs and modesty and so on. But through the Rebbe's eyes, we find that art is also godly. As, for example, this letter, 1977, 
which uh, obviously was written to an artist. The Rebbe writes, Many works of art involve an interplay of light and shadow, key elements in the composition of almost every artistic work. At first glance, a shadow appears to be something that conceals light, the absence of light. However, according to the teachings of Torah, everything God created in the world was created for the purpose of godliness. And this has to apply to shadow as well as to light. Properly executed and skillfully placed, a shadow can also provide an important positive effect. Though the shadow's illumination is of a different nature than the illumination and the effect of light, its appropriate application can actually enhance and highlight the effects of light. From this we can derive an important lesson whenever we encounter dark times. And in our times, when spirituality is less visible, these dark times may seem more numerous than in the past. We should use the negative in a positive way so that every spiritual shadow should come to be recognized as a setting that highlights the greatness of the Creator. When this goal is achieved, not only will our appreciation of the light be enhanced by contrast with the darkness, but in many situations where a person is confronted with dark matters, he will realize his ability to transform the darkness itself into light and the sorrow into happiness. There are two ways to approach darkness or dark experiences, moments in life when we don't see the light. One of them is to say, the darkness is there to help me appreciate the light. Like, uh, it'll feel so good when the headache goes away. To appreciate the positive and the healthy because we've seen the dark and the unhealthy. And so even the dark enhances life by giving us a better appreciation of the light side of life. That's one level. A deeper level is where the darkness itself becomes light, where the darkness itself is uplifting and inspiring, not because it will yield to the light and then we will appreciate light more than before, but that the darkness itself inspires. The darkness itself guides us, makes us wiser, makes us truer. And so it is in the world of art that the use of shadow, the use of the dark element, can either enhance the light or can itself be inspiring, can itself move the viewer to a deeper understanding of life itself. Now about the artist. The Rebbe writes in a letter about the artist. The essential quality of an artist is his ability to detach himself from the superficial appearances of the image with which he is working. He must be able to penetrate to the true essence of the object and transform his vision into a picture with physical dimensions. This artistic production reveals to the viewer that which he could not recognize on his own, an essence that was obscured 
by the superficial appearances. The artist has the skill to reveal that inner dimension, enabling the observer to see it with a different perspective and to realize the limitations of his previous awareness. In short, one who is divinely gifted, whether in sculpture, painting, or other artistic endeavor, has the privilege of being able to convert inanimate objects, such as paint, brush, and canvas, into a living form. In a deeper sense, this implies the ability to transform the material into the spiritual, especially in cases where the production involves a rendering of living creatures. This transfiguration truly comes into its own if the artistic medium is used to advance ideas that reflect Torah and mitzvahs, thereby raising artistic expression to its highest potential. This discussion is closely related to one of the key characteristics of a Jew's spiritual aspirations. As explained in the Torah, the entire creation emanates from and is sustained constantly by the Word of God. And yet, because of the process of divine concealment, the Word of God, which is creating and sustaining every created being, is hidden, and only this material existence is visible. Therefore, the challenge and the goal is to become aware of the godliness existent in all objects, and in so doing, to minimize the concealment of the true godly reality that is this world. We must take care not to allow external matters to obscure the real purpose of our creation. Even when we encounter difficulties and tests in life, we should see them as a vehicle to bring out our potential and help us in our spiritual growth. Keeping this perspective in mind will strengthen and inspire a person to cope with life's inevitable challenges and setbacks. Let's think for a moment about the difficulties in life. I would guess that in this letter, the Rebbe is not referring to material difficulties or financial difficulties or health problems. Here the Rebbe is talking about difficulties in life that are of a spiritual nature. When a person feels discouraged in spiritual matters, in moral matters, he doesn't see the importance of being good. He doesn't see the value of being modest. He doesn't see the necessity for being honest at all times. He doesn't see the godliness of things. And he is discouraged and disheartened in his spiritual growth. People often say, I would be far more observant than I would do all the mitzvahs if I had more faith, if I believed. But I don't believe. I, I, I have questions. I see contradictions, and I can't resolve them, and I can't be wholehearted in my faith. These are the difficulties that Rebbe is referring to in this letter. And the Rebbe is using the artist to explain why these difficulties exist and how we're supposed to respond to them. The whole purpose of art is to reveal a hidden reality. The artist is not discouraged by the fact that the reality is hidden. On the contrary, that inspires him to want to reveal that reality all the more. And when he comes across something where the reality is so hidden 
that it's becoming difficult to get past the surface and to reach that reality, that moves him more deeply, that challenges him more deeply, and it forces him to use his artistic talents to their fullest measure and not just coast with the talents that he's already developed. And so it is in our spiritual world, in the spiritual life. When we come across an experience or a subject, a philosophical obstacle, which seems to be very difficult and discourages us because we can't get past the surface and find the truth in that area or in that question, that should cause us to tap deeper into our spiritual reservoirs and bring out more of the soul's ability and strength that can see past all obstructions, can see past any surface and find the truth that exists everywhere. And particularly, when we see that there's a greater obstruction, when the externals are so resistant and so tough that we find that it's difficult to break through and see the light and see the truth and see the goodness that lies beneath the surface, what that tells us really is that the goodness that is buried here, the truth that is hidden behind this concealment is of the greatest and deepest and most important to the individual. And that's why there is that greater unusual amount of resistance. Because if you want to hide a really bright light, you have to cover it with a very dark shade. The brighter the light, the darker the shade. So here, when we see that the shade is so dark and so resistant and so tough, we should realize and appreciate that what that's telling us is that the truth hidden behind this darkest of shades must be the most important and the most crucial and the most significant in the world in general or in the experience of this individual artist divine artist, and that by uncovering this difficult concealment, we will be discovering and revealing the most precious and the greatest of truths. And that's why when art can be used to uncover not only a physical reality or an emotional reality that is concealed by external appearances, but can actually uncover a divine reality, the greatness the beauty of a mitzvah, the beauty of Torah, then the artist has gone to his deepest resources and has uncovered the greatest lights that may be hidden behind the darkest shades. One more letter we have on the sciences. For example, the atomic age. What can we learn from an atom? Well, rather obviously, in this letter that Ebba points out, and since we're talking about atoms, this is a very small letter, one lesson we can learn from the popular term atomic age is that we've seen in our time how the energy concealed within the smallest subatomic particles can destroy an entire city and millions of inhabitants. This is possible because within every tiny bit of matter, 
God has infused a tremendous amount of power. If this is so in the negative, such as warfare and destruction, it is much more so in regard with a Jew's spiritual potential. Through the proper use of the power locked within his soul, a person can have immeasurable effect on himself and on the entire world. We've learned that where we once believed the world to be made up of a multitude of different elements, through examining substances at the subatomic part level, we find that everything is made up of the same basic matter. This demonstrates the tremendous unity of creation. Now these two points that the Rebbe brings together, the great potential in an individual, in a small being, and the similar makeup, the shared matter that makes all of creation, these two things together tell us that every act, every deed, can have tremendous effect on the entire world because it is powerful and because the whole world is made up of the same substance. And when I improve the substance in, in myself, all substance is elevated and improved, and others will find it easier to find their way to the truth and to do what is right under all circumstances.